Well, welcome, friends, to our Wednesday in the Word. Um, so nice to see all of you out. Um, how many of you were here last week for the barbecue? Okay, okay, some, a few not. Well, at our barbecue last week, we kicked off and kind of spent some time unpacking what the rest of our summer is going to look like. And I'm not going to do that again because our first side kind of says it all. Who is God? That is what the question that we're going to be kind of coming back to each and every week. Um, and we spent some time looking at a, a study last week that kind of outlined, uh, it was a study done in the States that outlined what so many people believe about God. And we're just going to spend the summer looking at some of those key beliefs that those researchers identified that so many people hold about God, ideas about God that, that exist within the church itself and, and outside the church. And so this is the first week that we're really pressing into this topic. Um, and and the, the statement of belief that's so commonly held that we're addressing today is this, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. It's what so many people believe. Um, there is truth to that statement, and that statement also can sometimes lead us astray. And so we're going to talk about it tonight. And our, our very own Joel Pecora is with us. Um, yeah, let's give him a hand. Before, um, actually, why don't you come up, Joel? I'll, I'll pray over you prior to. Um, the way this evening is going to work, Joel's going to talk, and then we're just going to chat at our tables with one another. Um, as you can see on the table, there's some discussion questions. So do tune in as Joel speaks. Um, but why don't I just pray over Joel prior to. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this space. We thank you for this community that we can all gather together and engage in your word um, and engage with one another, trying to spur each other on to know you a little bit better um, wanting to encourage one another as we continue to seek out um, a relationship with you, seek to understand you a little bit more. And so I pray that this time tonight would honor you, would glorify you. I pray that our, our listening ears would be attentive and that our, our conversations around our table would be fruitful. And we thank you for Joel and we thank you for the preparation that he's put in. Um, and may your sense of peace be over him as he, can, as, he, as he teaches us this evening. I pray these things in your name. Amen. I was told that I have to hold a microphone today. Um, I flail my arms a lot when I talk, so if you kind of hear this, and then I keep talking like this, and then I come back like this, it's totally normal. Um, I'm sorry for those of you who are at home. Uh, probably the people in the room will be able to hear me, but maybe not so much at home. Um, so as, uh, as Jacob said, what we're discussing today is the idea of uh, who is God, and in particular, we're asking the question of, is God an active uh, participant or is he a passive observer? So uh, our time is limited to tonight, so I'm just going to uh, jump into this a little bit. There's, there's a growing thought in North America, as Jacob discussed, that while God may exist, he is passive and uninterested in us. And today I'd like to propose the idea that God isn't a passive observer of life on earth. Um, now there's a few different ways that we can demonstrate this. 
Um, some of the ways that this has been done in the past is to talk about God's hand in maintaining some of the scientific balance in the world. Uh, and another way is to talk about the miracles and the resurrection of Christ. And, uh, and still another way is to talk about the human experience with God. I'm going to delve into kind of that, that latter piece of the human experience, um, but I will give you some uh, recommended reads if you'd like to go down some other avenues. Um, uh, to start us off, I'm, I'm going to delve into scripture in a little bit um, as a starting point and then explore some unlikely but true scenarios uh, that have happened in time uh, pertaining to the human experience. Uh, one of them happened some time ago, and another is happening today as we speak. Finally, I want to leave you with some questions to chew on with an overarching theme, which is focusing on why uh, some in our society have come to the conclusion that God is passive. So as I mentioned, I want to leave you with some recommended reads of some paths that we're not going to go down, just to uh, give you guys an idea of where you can go with this. Um, so for the, uh, the scientific evidence, the things I'm not going to cover, the biology, chemistry, physics of God, interaction, and life, um, but a great book on that is uh, The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel, uh, Robert Jastrow, not actually a Christian, but some very interesting things to say, uh, God and the Astronomers, uh, The Privileged Planet by um, uh, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards, hang tight while I flip my page, and just about anything by William Lane Craig. Um, I'm also not going to cover any of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, but if you're interested in that, I would recommend checking out some of these reads. Um, one of them is The Case for the Resurrection by Gary Habermas, and another is The Case for Christ and The Case for Easter, uh, both by Lee Strobel. Finally, um, th this is a, a book that maybe some of you guys are familiar with, especially if you have not spent uh, your entire life in the church. Uh, Raymond Moody is a psychiatrist, a non-Christian, who wanted to ask the question of what happens when we die, and so he spent his time um, delving into near-death experiences, um, and that is tackling some of those questions of how is it that God is interacting with us on a human experience level. Um, but from human experience, there's kind of two different paths. We have the path of individual experience, and then we have the path of societal experience. And it's on this ladder, the societal experience, that we'll be jumping in today. I want to just give a quick caveat, which is to say that I don't pretend to um, have the power to unlock anyone's mind that's already made up or, or, or stir anyone's closed heart. I don't have that power. Um, that's something that, that I'm hoping that God might do with us today. Um, but I do want to have a little bit of fun um, in talking about some ideas. But before we do that, we have to jump into a bit of a temperature check. Um, and so we have to ask the question of what is it exactly that we're talking about today? So a fancy word for this is deism. And for those of you that can't read that on the screen, it says deism was a philosophy, especially popular in the 18th century, holding that God created the universe and its laws, but then receded from the action. And uh, while it was popular in the 18th century, the reality is this, is that there is a, a rise in those who might call themselves deists or at least hold to this particular view. Uh, in fact, a 2008 American religious identification study done by Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, found that there was a rise in those who profess no religious affiliation but believe in some kind of higher being. Um, in fact, 15% of the American population at that time uh, believed in that. A quarter of those believed in a higher power but no personal God, and we would call these deists. Now, 
for those of us, myself included, that aren't mathematicians, uh, there's about, that makes up for about 3.6% of the population. And that may seem small, but consider that deists would make up more of the American population than Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Mormons. A Wall Street Journal concluded uh, with those results by saying this, a rapidly growing number of Americans hold to belief system that used to be described as deism. And Stephen Waldman, the author of Founding Faith and also a Wall Street Journal columnist on spirituality, uh, concluded this, I suspect that some more modern American deists are actually quite like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. They don't believe in scripture or cotton to religion, but in the, the privacy of their own home, they think that the distant, aloof God occasionally checks in to listen to their prayers. So, that's our temperature check, right? This is what, at the very least, we have a large portion of the North American population thinking. I'm sure that for those of us who have turned on our TVs or listened to the radio, this isn't quite surprising to us. So we have to ask our question of where exactly does this idea come from? And in order to do that, we're going to have to start with Scripture. We need to know if this matches up with Scripture. And I suspect that if you've given up your Wednesday evening to be here, then you probably don't mind us delving into Scripture as a starting point because you're probably somewhat interested to know what the Bible has to say. So we're going to start at the oldest book in the Bible, Job. That may be surprising to you, and it's okay, he's not naked, I looked, it's fine. We've got, we've got the shaded parts, it's all good, we're good. Um, the, the oldest book in the Bible is Job, um, not actually Genesis as we, we often think. Um, and, and the oldest book in the Bible is actually a drama that, that unfolds. And the drama is happening in God's court. And in, in comes an angel in God's court, and some give that translation as Satan. And Satan challenges this idea that uh, Job, this man, is pious. And they, he says he's only pious because he has a good and comfortable life. And I challenge you, I give you a bet that I could make him not so. And God accepts this bet, and Job then suffers some of the uh, terrible things that come to his life. Ultimately, God wins the wager on this and restores what Job lost and further blesses him. So you may be asking, this is a strange place to begin our talk on deism tonight. Um, if you're trying to convince me that God is active, this seems like a bad place to go. But hang, hang on for a second. Um, because in our story, where we're going to start on these, this particular uh, section of Job, Job 28 to 29, uh, or sorry, I should say 38 to 39, that's, that's a mistake on my slide there. Um, what has happened here is that uh, Job has a bit of a chink in the armor. He's, he's suffered all these, these, these terrible losses in his life, and he's come to the conclusion that I need to ask God for some questions. Maybe we've been there before. And, and, and God, in his response to Job, comes in the form of a whirlwind. And in this whirlwind, I want us just to think about some of the things that God is saying to Job in this whirlwind and ask ourselves the question, is this a passive observer or is this an active participant as we just think about some of the things that God talks about as he talks about his own creation. So he says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Have you entered the storehouses of snow or observed the storehouses of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble for the day of war and battle? In which direction is the lightning dispersed, or the east wind scattered over the earth? 
Who cuts a channel for the flood or clears a path for the, light, the thunderbolt to bring rain on a barren land on a desert where no man lives? To satisfy the parched wasteland and make it sprout with tender grass? Does the rain have a father? Who has begotten the, do- the drops of dew? From whose womb does the ice emerge? Who gives birth to the frost from heaven when the waters become hard as stone and the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of Pallades? Or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellation in their seasons or lead out the bear and her cubs? Can you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds or can tilt the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into mass and the clods of earth stick together? Can you hunt the prey for a lioness or satisfy the hunger of young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God as they wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Have you watched the doe bear her fawn? Can you count the months they are pregnant? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. They deliver their newborn. Their young ones thrive and grow up in open field. They, they leave and do not return. Who set the wild donkey free? Who released the swift donkey from, their, from the harness? I made the wilderness his home and the salt flats his dwelling. Do you give strength to the horse or adorn his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? Does the hawk, tail, does the hawk take flight by your understanding and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and make his nest on high? When we think about this passage, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this a God who's simply sitting back, or is this a God that knows intimately each and every one of his creations? And so we come to this conclusion that there's a God in this whirlwind, and this God is interactive, he is interested, and he is implicated. Now I want to kind of fast forward. We started at the oldest section of the Bible we can possibly start at, this drama that unfolds. I want to kind of fast forward us to show us that this is a consistent God throughout the Bible, and we're going to go all the way to the first chapter of John. As a side note, this is a painting by Petrus van Skendel, who is um, an ancestor of my wife, but that's a side note. Um, anyways, I digress. Um, and and, and in, this, in, in this painting, it kind of captures what we're going for here when we open up John 1. This is, this is called the Nativity. So John 1 begins like this, and he sets this stage for the story of Jesus coming here on earth. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. To all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children born of natural descent, uh, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of husband's will, but born of God. The flesh, the, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So we have to ask the question, now that we're in the New Testament and we're living this New Testament era and this is setting the stage for God and we have this idea that God is a whirlwind in the New Testament and he's a light in the darkness in the New Testament, what are we coming to as a conclusion apart from the idea that he is interactive and interested and implicated in his creation? He's a whirlwind. He's a light in the darkness. 
They're both giving the images of a God who is heavily involved in the affairs of man, counter the idea of a deistic God. <clears throat> so if this idea of a distant and disinterested and aloof God, one who occasionally answers prayers, almost annoyingly so, doesn't come from Scripture, then perhaps it comes from some sort of human experience with God. If we can't find in the Bible, maybe that's because the Bible has a different idea of what goes on with God than what we're actually experiencing. It's possible. But let's take a look at two examples of why I don't actually think this is a great explanation. Like I said, I'm not going to delve into the, the human experience on an individual level, but I am going to look at it from a societal level. I'm going to bring us into a place where we don't often talk about in church. In fact, I've never heard it talked about in church, um, but I think it's interesting, and so I think we're going to go there. Um, oh, hold on. Stand by. And, that's, and that is on June 8th of 793 AD. On the northeast coast of England, there's a little place called Lindisfarne. And Lindisfarne uh, was a monastery once upon a time. And on this particular date, uh, these, these monks uh, who uh, are, are out gardening and are, are, walking, are walking the beaches and are, are doing their, their daily chores and are, are eating meals together, they, they look out and they see something kind of interesting on the horizon. And what they see are ships and sails as they come closer and closer to the monastery. And they watch in silence as this boat comes closer. And, they, and they've seen boats before. This is the 8th century. But they've never quite seen boats like this before. These are longer, skinnier, shallower boats than they're used to. And as they come closer, they listen to the voices of the soldiers inside the boat, and they recognize that they don't know the language of what's being spoken. They've never heard that language before. And off hop these men in armor and with spear and shield and axe, and they don't speak to the monks, but rather they, they kidnap them and they murder them and they torture them and they burn down much of Linda's farm. And this was kind of an interesting thing because what had happened, unlike any other groups, is that these strange new invaders had no respect for religious institutions such as monasteries, which were normally uh, a strength verboten, kind of don't go there, uh, you know, you can't attack those types of places. No, they didn't care about that. They took anything that looked rich and ornate, like Bibles and, uh, and paintings and any sort of imagery, one such eyewitness of the account said, said this. This is, somebody, this is a monk writing of this attack who had seen this for his own eyes and put pen to paper. He says, Never before has such a terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from the pagan race. The heathens poured out the blood of saints around the altar and trampled on the bodies of the saints in the temple of God like dung in the streets. You can see why we don't talk about it a lot in church. And one commentator says, it attacked the sacred heart of the Northumbrian kingdom, desecrating the very place where the Christian religion began in our nation. You see, Lindisfarne had an interesting place in the, the history of Christian uh, England in the fact that that is where uh, Christianity was brought into England. And so we enter into what's called the Viking Age. And what's interesting about the, the Viking Age is that it goes on for 300 years of attacking all sorts of different uh, places uh, around Europe, just about every place that you can imagine, Paris and England um, and, 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 all sorts of, and all sorts of places. And the reason is, is because Europe doesn't really have a good response to the Vikings. They don't have 
any good reactionary force that can counter them. Sure, they have coastal forces and they try to like come up with strategies and like, oh, we'll race on our horses and go try and chase them. The reality is those ships are too fast, they're, they're, they're too well armed, they get in there, they get out, they get back on their ships and they're gone. And they've got a pile of loot and they've got monks that they've kidnapped and, and, and they're gone, they're gone. We just, we just don't have a response to this. And they're so successful that they begin founding cities. So not that they're only they're sacking cities, but they're founding cities. They found cities like Dublin they found cities like York, which is what York region is named after, right? We're named after Toronto, and Toronto was named after York in England, and York in England was founded by the Vikings. We're, we're actually living in Viking history right now. And in France, they're, ground, they're granted places such as Normandy, which is called the land of the Norsemen, um, because they were gifted it because France couldn't stop them. They fought Arabs in Spain and Italy. They went as eastward as Russia. They went as westward as Canada. These guys are living success. We should be living in a Viking era now. So why aren't we? What happened? See, it turns out that when you take monks who are people of faith dedicated to the mission of God despite the horrors that are afflicted upon them and bring them back to your lands and they continue to live on mission, they become missionaries. And when you take ornate Bibles for their material worth and end up reading them and finding spiritual worth, when you begin entering the churches of God's people and seeing portraits and, and paintings of a different type of God, different from that of Thor and Loki and Freya, and you find one that gives his life freely for humanity instead of ruling over him with cloud and thunder, when you go at God's people for plunder and instead God plunders the hearts of your people for his glory, that's when you start hearing a voice in the whirlwind and that's when you start seeing a light in the darkness. And so by 1066, nearly 300 years after the Viking Age begins at Lindisfarne, it ends. And it doesn't end because of sword or spear or axe. The Viking dynasty was brought to the knees by the humble monk who prayed for the souls of the wicked and stole Bibles and, and, and stolen Bibles that infiltrated Viking society by their own hands. They became Christianized. Check and mate. Sure, right? <clears throat> God did things in the past. Fantastic. But that type of God doesn't live here today, right? He doesn't exist in our day and age. This is a God of the past. Sure, he may have existed in Old Testament time, New Testament time, and the Viking era, but he doesn't exist now, right? We say to ourselves, and that brings us to our next story. And this is our second story of, of, of tonight. And, I, and I, I pick it because I think it's really interesting because it's happening as we speak tonight. It's going on right now. Let's travel to Iran for a moment. So Open Doors USA is kind of like the authority on Christian persecution within the world. They give levels of extremity when it comes to um, how uh, terrible a, a, a Christian persecution is. And they've rated Iran as being the ninth most hostile uh, country in the world, nation in the world, towards Christianity at a level which is extreme, right? The, gov the government sees the church in Iran as, as an attempt by Western countries to undermine Islam and the Islamic Republic, or the Islamic regime, rather, of Iran. House churches... House groups made out of converts from Muslim backgrounds are often raided, and both their leaders and members have been arrested, pr prosecuted, and given long sentences for, quote, crimes against national security. 
and under the amendments of the penal code, teaching the Bible or telling others about the Christian faith, which contradicts the teachings of Islam, could result in prosecution, as could the claim, and I want you to pay attention to this one, the claim that Christians can communicate with Jesus, who Islam views as simply a prophet. That's a strange one to have on the books. We're going to keep that, we're going to put a pin on that one. For myself, and this is being recorded tonight, so I'm going to be careful with my words. Um, in some of my investigative background, I have spoken with certain members of the Canadian government who, have, who are experts on the matter, who have confirmed that in the GTA, there are state-sponsored agents, right now as we speak, who are taking down notes and writing down which of, the, uh, which of the Iranian converts are going to churches in Canada in the GTA. And what they do with that is they take that information back to Iran and they follow up with families and they wait until they come back to Iran and they may never come back to Canada. That's going on right now in the GTA. Okay. Needless to say, this is an infertile ground for the gospel. Nothing should be growing here. Agreed? Okay. But what we're actually seeing is what experts are calling <clears throat> the Iranian awakening. Muslim background Iranians are leading a quiet but mass exodus out of Islam and bowing their knees to a Jewish Messiah with kindled affection towards the Jewish people. <laughs> like, we should just stop there and go, okay, that's a mic drop right there. So heavily based upon the active nature of God that one confidential source in the underground Iranian church says this, and I want you to just think about this for a moment. He says this, he or she, we don't know. We find people of peace through prayer. We even find locations through prayer. Jesus has come in their dreams or he has come miraculously in their lives. And when we hear this, we know that Jesus has gone ahead of us. They don't have money. They don't have communications. They, 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 they precariously communicate with each other. And so how do they come up with places to meet in their house churches? Because Jesus comes to them in their dreams. That's how. And miracles. Miracles are happening on a daily basis. When ISIS came into town, one Yazidi man who experienced Christ coming to him in a dream and became a follower of Christ had been drenched in 20 gallons of gasoline and lit on fire. Let me, let me correct that statement. The gasoline had been lit on fire. See, because it turns out that when he got lit on fire, he didn't burn. And so ISIS became frustrated with this, and so they tried again, and they tried again. They tried three times in total before giving up. And get this. You know who God has chosen to work through the most during this awakening? The youth of Iran and the women the second-class citizens, so that his glory may not be questioned. So why? Why are we seeing an increase in deism in places like Canada, but is, Iran is seeing an increase in Christianity? Perhaps God is different in geographical places. Maybe. Maybe God is different in historical places like the Viking Age and now, and maybe he's different in geographical places like Iran and now, but I don't actually think this is logical. I think if we think for a second, it doesn't make much sense. I think it's more logical to conclude that God's the same. It's just that it's people who approach God differently. We've become accustomed to the acceptance and tolerance and safety and comfort while our newborn Iranian baby brothers and sisters 
are saying things like this. I thank God for considering me worthy of enduring the, this persecution because of him, said Hamad Ashuri, who was sentenced to 10 months imprisonment and beaten by the authorities after refusing to give out the whereabouts of other Christians. And a leader in the Iranian underground church explains that their goal is not planting churches, but rather making disciples. This is what, this is what he says. Disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. The disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else, and converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. See, the Iranian awakening is not just simply another awakening like every other awakening. No, this is the fastest growing church on the planet as we speak tonight. It's not my opinion. This is, this is the fact. So it's a funny thing that happens when persecution and suffering and discomfort and chaos shake up our soup de jour and upset our apple cart, and it allows us to refocus on the things that are truly important in life and ultimately the thing that we are born to do, which is be on mission for him. Bring about the renewal of all things and usher into the kingdom of earth through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe me, I'm going to invite us to try an exercise together. And yes, I will need some participation. I'm going to ask for someone to read this. You can do better, Brian. I want to hear some conviction on that. Okay, um, here's, here's, here's part two of our, of our participation today. You'll all get a trophy. I'm going to ask you some questions. And when I ask those questions, I want you to read what I'm going to put on, the, on, on here, but I want you to say something while I ask that as an answer to my question. And that answer, I'm going to give it to you. It's not tricky. It's we multiplied, Okay. Now, before I ask it, I'm going to have us try it together just so that everyone's comfortable here. So we're going to say, we multiplied. You ready? One, two, three. We multiplied. Good. Okay. So check this out. When the earliest Christians were hunted down by Jewish leaders, what happened to the disciples of God? We multiplied. When the, when the Romans crucified, burned, and put the people of God into the amphitheaters, what happened to the disciples of God? We when the Celtic kings tried to murder those, those of St. Patrick and the Irish Christians, what happened to the disciples of God? We when the Vikings came to pillage and plunder and desecrate all that was holy and honoring to God, what happened to the disciples of God? When the perverted Catholic Church of the 15th and 16th centuries came after John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, Jen Huss, and Wyndham Tyndale, what happened to the disciples of God? When the Iroquois tortured and murdered Jesuits who came with the, with the word of salvation, what happened to the disciples of God? When the Soviet Union and all its might executed priests, burned churches, and imprisoned believers, what happened to the disciples of God? Now as we watch as the governments of China, Iran, and several African nations sanction, kidnap, torture, rape, and execute Christians around the world, what is happening to the disciples of God? Brian, can you still read that God is distant? It's a little bit hard to see now, huh? 
See, it's, it's interesting, right? It's through suffering that we, we get to have a little bit of clarity. We get to actually erase this idea that God is distant and focus on the things that are important, focus on what's actually happening in God's world. It's not so much that God has changed in history or geography. His mission, his essence has remained constant. He is the voice in the whirlwind and the light in the darkness. His mission is our mission. It's just that suffering alleviates us from the distraction and the noise and shakes us awake. You see, when we trade our mission for relaxation and renewal for reassurance, we miss out on what's going on around us and what could be transforming within us. When we've forgotten the power of God, our ethos, our story, where we come from, where we're going, and that the church was a movement birthed in the chaos and baptized by holy fire, it's as if we've traded our open plains for wooded pens and scheduled feeding troughs. Affluence and comfort and safety become our idols while we elevate their voices and drown out a God who desires to move and mold and stir and shake. And society notices. So the real question is not, is God aloof and distant in our lives? He's interested, present, and near, whether we see that or not. The real question is, do those outside of our walls perceive, perhaps correctly, that God is aloof and distant in our hearts, and by extension, think that he's out of reach for them as well? And that's something to dwell on.